First Samuel, First Samuel. Uh, either if you have a Bible or you have an electronic device that has a Bible, uh, in either case, First Samuel. In 1928, a gentleman named W.L. Caldwell made this profound statement. He said, no nation is greater than its mothers. No nation is greater than its mothers because mothers are the makers of men. This chapter from 1 Samuel happened during the period of the Old Testament judges. Three successive kings ruled united Israel, Saul, David, and David's son Solomon. But before there were those kings, there were a series of tribal leaders called judges. And those judges governed different regions in ancient Israel. But that was an extremely difficult time period because Israel was in serious turmoil and confusion. The priesthood was corrupt. There was a constant threat of an invasion from pagan armies. The people were divided. And the nation needed a great man to lead them. And God needed a great woman in order to make that great man. Hannah was that great woman, and she was the mother to that great man that Israel needed, and his name was Samuel. Samuel became a prophet and also a judge to the entire nation. And there's no question but that he is one of the most recognizable and important characters from the entire Old Testament. Samuel became who he was, in part, because of his mother, Hannah. Hannah was an awesome, awesome mother. There are three specific things described here in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that profile Hannah. Three things that characterize Hannah's greatness as a mother. Don't miss them. One is that Hannah had a right relationship to her husband. Hannah had a right relationship to her husband. Notice verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Reathimim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ethram, and his name was Elkanah. Verse 2, and he, Elkanah, had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. I might add, the name Hannah means grace. An expected mother should remember that. Hannah is a good name. Hannah means grace. And the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, notice, but Hannah had no children. There are three main characters in this chapter. Elkanah, Penina, and Hannah. Most parents don't understand that the most important relationship essential to raising children is not the relationship necessarily between the parent and the child, although that is extremely important, but it is the relationship between the parents themselves. Children learn about human relationships from their parents. Children learn lessons on moral values. Children learn about sin and forgiveness, about compassion and understanding, and on and on. It's unfortunate that in biblical accounts, sometimes the first generation that sinned seemed to perpetuate that same sort of sin onto the next generation. Some examples uh, in the Old Testament, Jacob. We have mentioned Jacob of late. 
Jacob deceived his father Isaac, remember? Um, so that he could receive his older brother Esau's birthright and blessing. And then, in Jacob's old age, his sons, representing the second generation, deceived him about their brother Joseph. His sons convinced Jacob that his favorite son Joseph was dead. And he wasn't. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then from that same union, his son Solomon, representing the second generation, became one of the most prolific womanizers of all time. He had some 700 wives and 300 concubines. So from a generational perspective, modeling, parents modeling in a relationship to one another, modeling does matter. Research indicates that by the time a child is a teenager, he's imitating his parents, even if that imitation is different from what his parents have said he should or he shouldn't do. Parents understand that if our mouth says one thing and our actions do something else, then our children are ultimately going to repeat our actions. That's the reason most of what irritates us about our children are things that we have done ourselves. Sometimes what bothers us most about our children is some, some unacceptable behavior that was essentially learned from us. It is imperative as parents that we first go in the direction we want our children to go because our children are going to follow us. And that's what Hannah did. She modeled marriage. She modeled marriage because she had a right relationship to her husband. Please notice, though, that this was not a perfect marriage, because Hannah was not married to a perfect man. Elkanah was not the perfect husband, and no husband is. Elkanah, though, had a unique problem, because Elkanah was a polygamist. Notice the second verse read, he was married to two women, and that made him a polygamist. Remember, this was a primitive age, and at that time, polygamous marriages were a part of normal human culture. But that was never, never God's intention. Genesis 2, verse 24 reads, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they, meaning the man and the woman, meaning the two of them, not the three of them, not the five of them, and they shall become one flesh. From the beginning, God's design has been that one man be married to one woman, and so monogamous marriage was established as the divine standard. God did in his patience, permit polygamous marriages in the Old Testament age, but he did not endorse them. And in each case, those multiple unions caused serious, serious problems, as in the case of Hannah and Penina. Besides, in the New Testament age, Jesus taught that to be married to more than one woman is basically impossible. Remember Jesus said that no man can serve two masters? can't do it. He said that. Some of you will have, you'll get it this afternoon. I mean, it just, it's sad when I have to explain everything. This was a difficult marriage that Elkanah had created because he, he married a second bride 
Penina. He married Penina so that she could bear his children and create another generation who could then possess his inheritance. That was a constant source of sadness to Hannah because Penina was able to give Elkanah children and she was not. I've pastored women that wanted so much to be able to conceive a child and have struggled to do that. In some cases, it has been impossible, impossible to bear children. And so these women have had a difficult time listening to uh, announcements about other women getting pregnant. And I, I have grieved for them. That was basically the situation Hannah found herself in. Panina was pregnant. And Hannah wasn't, and Hannah couldn't. So this wasn't a perfect marriage, but it was a good marriage. A good marriage because Hannah shared three things together with Elkanah. Notice, one, the two of them shared together in worship. The two of them worshiped together. Verse 3, this man, Elkanah, went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrificed to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Each Old Testament Jewish male was required to attend three annual religious feasts. And the one mentioned here was probably the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was held at Shiloh, located about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. It was a requirement that all Jewish males attend these feasts. This wasn't optional. This was mandatory. Each male was to attend this feast and offer sacrifices to the Lord. And so Elkanah did that. That meant Hannah had a devout husband. He wasn't perfect uh, because probably out of ignorance, he was a polygamist. But the most important thing was that he was a God worshiper. He was faithful to God to worship him. Notice that Elkanah brought both Hannah and Panina to this feast to also worship with him. That meant Elkanah and Hannah joined together as mates in order to worship God. And that act implies that the two of them were on the same spiritual page. But contrary to that, I hear about more and more Christian women dating getting engaged to, and then being married to non-Christian men. And that unequal spiritual equation is a prescription to parenting failure. It creates incredible confusion in the mind of children to have parents pulling them in opposite spiritual directions. I am the oldest of five children. And in addition to us, there are now altogether 11 grandchildren and four great-grandchildren, and except for one prodigal nephew of mine, all of us that are old enough have made a definite decision to become Christians. And part of the reason that has happened is because our parents shared together in the same commitment to public corporate worship. My parents were always in church together. Parents that worship together stay together. Second, notice, is that the two of them shared together in love. The two shared together in love. Verse 4, And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Verse 5, But, notice, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. The implication is that Elkanah didn't love Panina. 
I'm sure he loved her in the sense that she was the mother of his children, but he didn't love Penina as he loved Hannah. Penina was only there essentially to produce the children that Hannah couldn't have. She was only there to create generations that might inherit Elkanah's estate. But Hannah was the woman he loved. And he made no attempt to hide that fact. This feast required a peace offering from the male to be placed onto the sacrificial altar. And then after the priest extracted the small part he needed, he then returned the rest of that sacrificial meat to the ones that had offered it. That food would then be used as part of a feast. And at that feast, Elkanah gave a double portion of food to Hannah because she was the one he loved. He showed favoritism toward her because she was the one he loved. According to ancient Eastern custom, that was a gesture extended to an honored guest. And Elkanah did that, giving that double portion. He did that in front of everyone in the room. And so it was a public gesture. Elkanah did what all husbands should do. Something I don't do enough of. Something all husbands should do. And that is to demonstrate love and affection to our mates in public. Now that does not mean to be affectionate uh, in a superficial and artificial sense in order to communicate a possession obsession and send a message to other men, this one is mine so back off. That's foolishness. I have seen that happen often, though. I mean public demonstrations of affection, ranging from opening doors for our mate, to holding hands together, to casual embracing one another, all of that in public. And to do that as a normal extension of someone's sincere personal care and devotion to our mate. And as I said earlier, I admit, I need, I need improvement in this area. As my cell phone in public, sometimes gets more of my attention than it should. And this is something that's frustrating to Hopi. How do I know that? Because she tells me. That's how I know that. Now, at church, neither one of us do that. We almost aren't even together at church because we are each preoccupied ministering to other people. We're not here for one another. We have one another all the time. We're here for other people. Remember, the real question is not, do we love our mate? But the question is, does our mate feel loved by us? Because if he or she doesn't feel loved, then we still have homework to do. Number three is that the two shared together in emotion. The two shared together in emotion. Notice verse six. And her rival, Panina. See, Panina is adversarial. Penina is, is jealous. Um, her rival Penina also provoked her, Hannah, severely. This wasn't some mild irritation on the part of Penina. Penina is out to get Hannah. Notice, also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. Penina was envious of Hannah. Because Hannah, not her, Hannah was the recipient of Elkanah's affection, not Penina. Penina was more of a surrogate. Uh, Elkanah married Penina so she could give him children, not because he loved her. And she could sense that. 
that she was not the object of his love, devotion, and affection. And so to be mean and irritating, she harassed Hannah and harassed Hannah about her barrenness. And she did that often in an attempt to cause Hannah to become miserable. I'm sure Panina made smarky statements like, Hannah, how are the kids? Oh, I forgot. You don't have children. I'm so sorry. And Panina rubbed it in all the time. Verse 7. So it was year by year when she, Hannah, went up to the house of the Lord that she, Panina, provoked her, provoked her, therefore she, Hannah, wept and did not eat. Notice that even though Hannah had received a double portion of food at the feast from Elkanah, she didn't have an appetite, and so she couldn't eat. Verse 8, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I, am I not better to you than ten sons? Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a bad question. You don't, <laughs> you don't do that. Uh, the situation was that Hannah was grieved. She was grieved. She couldn't conceive. Uh, she couldn't give birth to a child. Um, Panina could and did. And Panini was all over her case about her barrenness. And Elkanah could see she was upset. He was sensitive and sympathetic to that. And notice he was sensitive enough to be aware of Hannah's emotional condition. And he tried to empathize and join her in that emotional sadness. And so he asked probing questions, although the last one was not a good question. He, you know, what are all these tears about, babe? Don't you have an appetite? How come you're so sad? I'm so sorry. I've counseled countless women that have confessed to me in private about some emotional problem. I mean, something significant. And it's, it's causing them much, much anguish. And then after I interrogate them as to if their husband is aware of what they're feeling, so much of the time the response is, Pastor, he doesn't have a clue. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't know what I'm going through. And the reason that some men aren't aware of their wives' true emotional state is because some marriages are superficial and aren't authentic. Sometimes a husband does ask his mate. If he senses something's wrong, he asks his mate if there's a problem, and she's hesitant to verbally uh, verbalize exactly how she feels because she's afraid, afraid of some rejection from him. So she responds, I'm okay, I'm fine. And unlike Elkanah, some men are going to be satisfied with that response. Don't ever be satisfied. Continue to probe into her emotional state. Because if we don't, that could be a serious mistake. The best thing a man can do is to, on a consistent basis, speak to his wife about how she feels. And he can do that through asking sensitive but probing questions about her frustrations and disappointments and concerns and hurts and unfulfilled hopes and dreams. Remember that although a man might be tempted to give someone a piece of his mind, a woman has been designed to share her heart. And sometimes she just needs someone there to listen. So men, we should be there. 
we should affirm and validate her feelings. Or she might find someone else who wants to listen. And that could become an unhealthy connection. Number two is that Hannah had a right relationship to God. Hannah had a right relationship to God. Not just her husband, but to God. That relationship to God was evident in three things. One was that Hannah prayed an intense prayer. Hannah prayed an intense prayer. Verse 9. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, meaning after the others had finished eating the meal. Remember, she wasn't able to eat. Uh, She has no appetite. Uh, She's so depressed. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. Verse 10. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Now please know, notice who Hannah prayed to. She prayed to the Lord God. She prayed to Yahweh. She prayed to the monotheistic God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I found it insulting that this past Thursday, on the National Day of Prayer, the president of these United States issued a public statement addressing that special occasion and never once mentioned God. In the most recent proclamation on the National Day of Prayer from the previous administration, God was mentioned 11 times. This time, there was no mention at all of the divine. The first time a president has ever made that omission. He mentioned prayer, but he neglected to mention God. It was a godless announcement because this current administration is a godless administration and represents a godless government. Jot down Psalm 9, verse 17. Psalm 9, 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell. And get this, all the nations that forget God. That would be us as a nation if we don't repent. How can you comment on prayer and omit God from the equation? That's nonsensical. Notice that in an emotional sense, Hannah was completely crushed. And so she prayed in that condition. Hannah understood that God is the source of children. And that he was the only one that would be able to reverse this sterile condition. So she prayed that God would do that. She cried profusely and prayed and prayed and poured out her need to God. This was an intense prayer. Prolific author John Ortberg has referred to prayer as, quote, interrupting heaven. Prayer is interrupting heaven. And that is what Hannah did. She caused a serious interruption in heaven because she was desperate. And desperate people pray. The reason it has been said there are no atheists in foxholes is because inside a foxhole during battle and bullets are raining down, even an atheist is desperate and is probably going to pray to someone. And so do people pray going through an unwanted divorce. And so does someone pray that receives lab results that read the tumor is malignant. And so do parents pray that have a child that has left home wandering the streets addicted to some drug. 
If someone reaches the end of his human resources, then he's going to pray as an, in, as an instinct, almost like a reflexive action. The same as a man that doesn't get enough oxygen is going to gasp for breath. The same as someone that is falling reaches out for something to grab. That desperation is the reason someone is going to pray during a crisis. Hannah prayed an intense passionate prayer because she was convinced prayer changes things and it does remember prayer can do anything god can do and people god can do anything second was hannah made a serious promise to god a serious promise to god verse 11 then she made a vow and said o lord of hosts if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant a reference to herself. Ancient women from the East considered childlessness as an affliction. Women who were unable to bear children were considered social outcasts and were shunned. And remember me, she said, and remember me and not forget your maidservant. It doesn't mean God had forgotten who she was, but she wanted God to remember her in the sense of answering this request. But will give your maidservant a male child. Notice she doesn't pray for just a child. She is more specific. She wanted a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Hannah told God, through the means of praying, that if he would give her a son, she would give him back to God as a lifelong Nazarite. Notice the last statement in verse 11 reads, No razor shall come upon his head. That statement refers to one of three components to the Nazarite vow that is described in number 6, verses 3 through 8. The word Nazarite is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means dedication through separation. Dedication to God through a sense of separation. The man that would take the vow of the Nazarite completely dedicated himself to God through separating himself from three things throughout the entire duration of that vow. One, he could not use grape products, including wine, vinegar, and raisins. He couldn't use grape products, and that would ban him from most banquets and celebrations. Second, he could not cut his hair. It was assumed he had hair. I'm curious, I haven't investigated this. I'm curious if a bald man was even eligible to take the vow of the Nazarite. I couldn't. Third, he could not make contact with a dead corpse. He could not touch a dead corpse. He could never be a mortician. Most Nazarite vows were short-term, a matter of months. But there are three biblical characters that were lifelong Nazarites. One was Samson, another judge, strong man from the Old Testament. Second, Samuel. And in the New Testament, John the Baptist. Those three men were lifelong Nazarites. Those men had an unusual consecration to God, and that meant they did not enjoy much personal indulgence, and there was no preoccupation about personal image and status, but that was the existence Samuel maintained as a result of his mother's promise. The point is that Hannah made a promise, 
And the biblical record indicates that she kept that promise. She returned Samuel to God to be a lifelong Nazarite and serve his nation as a representative from God to his people. Sometimes people make promises to both God and man and then ignore those promises or transgress them on purpose. Some of us forget about our promises, but Hannah didn't. I still remember seeing a gentleman in one of our previous congregations. He was in critical condition. He was in ICU. He was in the hospital. I went to see him. He hadn't been consistent. Uh, he knew that. He said to me, Pastor, if God pulls me through this thing, if he heals me, if, if, if I'm okay, I promise I'm going to be in church every single Sunday. Ask me if I ever saw him in church again. No, not at all. Not Hannah. She made a promise and kept that promise. Number three was that Hannah did not compromise biblical standards. Hannah did not compromise biblical standards, verse 12. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli, Eli the high priest, watched her mouth. Verse 13, now Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Now, maybe she didn't admit any audible sound, or the sound was so soft that it wasn't heard, not sure. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Verse 14. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. Eli the priest was not discerning at this juncture because he suspected Hannah of being intoxicated and in effect all she did was to pray an intense prayer she moved her mouth but she did not make audible sounds or those sounds she made were so soft those sounds couldn't be heard most public praying was audible and so that was unusual that she's doing this but some of us might have done the same thing praying from our heart moving our mouth some, but not creating much of an audible sound. Hannah was engaged in intense prayer, but Eli misunderstood that and suspected she was intoxicated. Verse 15, but Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Verse 16, Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Verse 17, Then Eli answered, once he was made aware that this is just intense praying, and there's no, there's no alcohol uh, part of this, Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. Verse 18, And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Because of this conversation with Eli, she felt more confident of her prayer being answered. And so she regained her appetite, and she was no longer depressed and grieved. Both Old and New Testaments condemn drunkenness in the strongest possible language because being intoxicated is unacceptable to God. I do not drink. I've never consumed alcohol. That's something I have never done. Um, our, uh, 
Our home is an alcohol-free zone. I was raised in that. I never had a desire to consume alcohol. But I have to be honest, I cannot demonstrate from Scripture emphatically that it is wrong or a sin to consume alcoholic beverage in moderation. I think there's Christian liberty uh, that would permit someone to do that. But there is no debate about intoxication. No debate. Getting smashed and bombed out of our mind on alcohol is a serious sin. And God condemns it throughout Scripture. From childhood, through being next door neighbors to a severe alcoholic. And I remember, I remember he would come home drunk. His wife would lock him out. He couldn't get in. He would sleep in the flower bed until morning. I remember he would get drunk and she would be concerned he would drive. And so she would go and she would pull out the spark plug wires out, you know, in, in his car. One time it took six policemen, six of them, to arrest him and put him in a paddy wagon. He was so violent because of his drunkenness. And I witnessed this. And then on a professional basis, I have counseled people that are addicted to this substance and so I have seen firsthand the devastating consequences from drunkenness. And I have zero, zero, zero tolerance for fools who are intoxicated and then attempt to drive. I have no pity in my heart for these fools who get a DUI. Don't you dare drive and endanger innocent people. You want to wrap yourself and your car around a tree? Fine, go at it. But don't you dare endanger innocent people's lives. I've seen so much alcohol abuse. But Hannah wasn't compromised. She wasn't intoxicated. Hannah was extremely sad and grieved about being childless. But get this, she refused to medicate herself through alcohol. As millions do. She refused to do that. She could have medicated herself so as to ease the emotional pain she felt. She did not. Hannah did not compromise biblical standards. Number three, Hannah had a right relationship to her child. We've seen she had a right relationship to her husband. She had a right relationship to God. She had a right relationship to her child. One is that she was dedicated to the child. Committed, dedicated to the child. Verse 19. Then they rose up early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. Probably most of us understand the word knew or to know in the Old Testament means to know Hannah in a sexual sense. So the two of them had sexual relations. And notice, and the Lord remembered her. The Lord hadn't forgotten that prayer. He remembered to answer it. Verse 20, So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Verse 21, Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. Verse 22, But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, and that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. 
Verse 23, So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. It's interesting that at the time Elkanah was scheduled to sacrifice at the tabernacle, Hannah refused to go with him. She wasn't being insubordinate, but she was committed to her son uh, because she was still nursing Samuel. She couldn't just drop him off at a sitter for the better part of a month, and she didn't feel comfortable dragging him off on a long journey, and so being sensitive to Samuel's best interests as an infant, she chose to keep it at home until he was old enough to be more independent from his mother. Because no one knows a child better than its mother. I just read an incredible illustration of that. In 1997, a raging fire completely devastated a house in Philadelphia. That was the home of Luz Cuevas. Luz Cuevas. It was most unfortunate and tragic that it seemed that fire had burned to death her 10-day-old infant daughter, Delimar. 10-day-old daughter in the house. The house burned to the ground because the fire was so complete in its devastation, the infant's remains were never found. Luz grieved and grieved, but eventually she had to move on. Moving ahead six years, Luz was invited to a child's birthday party. At that party, there was a six-year-old girl. She wasn't, she was an attendee at the party. She wasn't the birthday child. A six-year-old girl that triggered something in Luz. It was a simple dimple that started her. She said to her sister who accompanied her to that party, she said, see that little girl? She's my daughter. Remember the last time she saw her daughter, she was just 10 days old. 10 days old before the fire. And this little girl at this party is six. And she still insisted, I know that's my daughter. The sister thought Luz was losing her mind. She said, that cannot be. That's impossible. But the mother was convinced she was her child. Luz told the little girl that she thought she had some gum in her hair. So she let her pretend and she was pretending to look for some gum. And in the process, she managed to confiscate a few strands of her hair. And then she brought them to the police station to have them checked for DNA. And the Philadelphia Police Department confirmed her instincts. That child was her baby, Delamar. It was Luz's lost daughter the one she had thought had burned in the fire. Here's what had happened. Delamar had been kidnapped. A woman named Carolyn Correa stole the child and then started the house fire in an attempt to cover up the crime. So after six years of supposedly being dead, Delamar returned to her rightful home because no one, no one knows a child better than its mother. Hannah was dedicated to Samuel and his development. And God requires that same relationship and commitment from all mothers. Number two is that she dedicated the child to the Lord. She dedicated 
Samuel to the Lord. Verse 24. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Verse 25. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. Verse 26. And she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. Verse 27, For this child I pray, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I have asked of him. So she brought Samuel to the tabernacle, to Eli, and said, I'm the one. I'm the one that was here praying, asking God for a son. And God gave me a son. Here he is. Verse 28, Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. Some translations render this not as lent, but as dedi- dedicated. Dedicated. I have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent or dedicated to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. Samuel might have been about three at the time his mother dedicated him to God. Samuel assisted Eli the high priest. He would become a resident there. He assisted Eli throughout his childhood and then as an adult became one of the nation's judges and a famous prophet. But all it all started at this dedication at the end of chapter 1. This is interesting because Hannah wanted a child from God for the singular reason not to get Panina off her back per se, not so that she, she wanted a child so she could give that child back to God. She didn't have some ulterior ambition or motive that Samuel might become rich and powerful so he could take care of her in her old age. No, that was not the objective. Hannah only wanted Samuel to serve God full throttle all his life. And that's what happened. Please notice that God honored that attitude. He honored that selfless attitude. Because in chapter 2 and verse 21, it states, God blessed Hannah to the extent that she had three more sons and two daughters. And that meant that altogether that this once infertile woman had been blessed with a total of six children. On a personal basis, I've never wanted to be blessed that much, but that's, that's great. That's great. In summation, to become the right mother means to have a right relationship to your husband. It means to have a right relationship to God. And it means to have a right relationship to your child. Hannah had all that. And she is an excellent, excellent model of motherhood to mimic. Someone has suggested an idea for another Survivor series. Um, In the U.S., the television program Survivor has been running since 2000. I might have seen a a handful of episodes at the beginning. I, I don't watch television much at all. Six married men in this series will be dropped off on an island with one car and four children each for six weeks. Each child is going to play two sports and take either music or dance classes. There is no fast food. Each man must take complete care of his four children, keep his assigned house clean, correct all homework, 
complete science projects, prepare meals, do tons of laundry, and pay a list of pretend bills, but without enough money to do it. In addition, each man will have to budget in money for groceries each week. Each man must also take each child to a doctor's appointment, a dentist appointment, and an appointment for a haircut. He must also make cookies or cupcakes for special social functions. Each man will be responsible for decorating his own assigned house, planting flowers outside, and keep it presentable at all times. These men will have only, only have access to television after the children are asleep and all the chores have been done and there is only one television between them. Each father will be required to know all the words to each stupid song that comes on television and the name of each character on cartoons. The men must shave their legs, wear makeup on a daily basis, which they must apply themselves either during driving or making four lunches. They must adorn themselves with jewelry, wear comfortable but in-style shoes, and keep their nails polished and eyebrows groomed. During one of the six weeks on this island, each man will have to endure severe stomach cramps, backaches, and have extreme unexplained mood swings, but never once complain or slow down from other duties. The men must attend parent-teacher conferences, church services each Sunday, and find time at least once to spend the afternoon at the park or a similar setting. He will need to pray with the children each night, bathe them, dress them, brush their teeth, comb their hair each morning by 7 a.m. At the end of the six weeks, a test will be given, and each father will be required to know all of the following information. Each child's birthday, height, weight, shoe size, clothes size, and the doctor's name. Also the child's height at birth, weight, and time of birth, and length of labor. Each child's favorite color, middle name, favorite sack, favorite song, favorite drink, favorite toy, biggest fear, and what they want to be when they grow up. Each father must clean up after their sick children at 3 a.m. and then spend the remainder of the day tending to that child and waiting on them hand and foot until they are feeling better. Each man will have to make an Indian hut motel with six toothpicks, a tortilla, and one marker and get a four-year-old to eat a medium-sized serving of peas. Throughout the series, the kids vote the men off the island based on performance. The last man wins only if he still has enough energy to be intimate with his spouse at a moment's notice. If the last man does win, then he gets to play the same game over and over again sequentially for the next 18 to 25 years until he eventually earns the right to be called mother. I could never be a mom. Let's pray. Father... Thank you for mothers. We often take them for granted. That's an area, an air of serious magnitude. They are a blessing from you to us. Help us to love them. Help us to appreciate them. Because someday they'll no longer be with us. I pray you'll bless this message to our hearts, especially to our mothers. Help them to strive to be a Hannah. What a woman. What a mom. I thank you for her and for her example. And I'm so grateful that uh, some of us men have been privileged to have a mom like that and to be married to a woman 
who is such a mother. So thank you for what we've learned. Help us not to forget it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.